RY Portland at 107.1 and at 91.1 on Portland's FM dial. Also in the Vancouver, Washington area on KXRWLP at 99.9 FM and streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. We've completed the first hour of today's show dedicated to the arithmetic of tomorrow's solar eclipse. The second hour of today's show is a musical expression of the ecstasy of the solar eclipse. This is the eclipse through human eyes, especially our visceral, historical, pre-scientific revolution human eyes. To really grasp the power of a full solar eclipse to excite the human imagination, we need to see it from the point of view of the ancients. Imagine yourself at the summit of a Mayan pyramid temple. In the sky, the moon is edging toward the sun, and a vast shadow is chasing across the landscape. Before you is a crimson-soaked altar and an endless line of sacrificial victims whose blood will ensure that the sun will again re-emerge today to begin a new cosmic cycle of life on Earth. In today's second hour, I offer you the frenzied percussive music of this raw human emotion. Let the rhythm carry you forward through this incredible spectacle of light and shadow, flesh and blood, fear and awe. Give yourself over to the drum and the ancient fevered delirium. Eclipse Soundtrack Part 2. On the Adventures of Encyclopedia Sound, X-Ray FM.
Yeah. But actually, he's kind of hard to spot. 
He's usually hidden behind his computer screen. It's just the glamorous work of a data journalist. The job may not be super glamorous, but Chris Zabaksky's prefers accuracy. Well, here is actually the air. And accuracy is critical when working with this kind of stuff. When Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law, submitted his original forms, there were some assets he forgot. Jared Kushner omitted up to at least 70 assets. Kushner later reported those assets. But you might be wondering why he or anyone else in the administration is required to submit these forms. Most of the ones we're talking about right now are filed by government employees when they enter government service. The disclosures list like who they previously worked for, what kinds of investments they have, what sources of income they've had. And what money they owe. And the reason for all this is so that the public can understand what, if any, conflicts of interest that these folks might have. Trump's own money is tied up in more than 500 investments. And that's just Trump. There's also his billionaire education secretary. Betsy DeVos has a huge list of assets. Jared Kushner has a very long list of assets. I don't know if it's quite as long as Trump. Plus, lots of other folks you haven't heard of. Senior advisors, deputy assistants, liaisons. They all have to file these forms. I'm scrolling here through page after page of, of these. Uh, and Still, it was too much for one guy. And so what we've decided to do is conscript a team of people in the newsroom. That's Carrie Levine, one of CPI's political reporters. So that way we can have a perfectly accurate set of sortable disclosures in a usable format that we can mine for stories, that we can mine for patterns, that we can mine for trends. There's a sort of uh, all-in history with the center on large projects where if something really needs to get done, then uh, you know everybody pitches in. Even the boss. Hi, I'm John Dunbar. I'm the CEO with the Center for Public Integrity. John says getting these disclosures in front of the public is important because these people are part of the wealthiest administration in modern history. And there's a lot to keep track of. People who are not just a little bit rich, but stunningly rich and have so many assets. President himself, who is not divested from his stunning array of assets, it's absolutely possible and, you know, I would dare to say probably likely that they're going to be influenced by their own holdings in terms of their behavior in the public sector. If we can find people who have detailed knowledge of assets, the members of the Trump cabinet as well as appointees as well as Trump himself have, it'll really help us to find out whether there are real conflicts out there. But to get people to help, we had to get this spreadsheet in front of a lot of people. So veteran White House reporter Christina Wilkie jumped into the project and our editorial meeting via conference call. Hi, I'm Christina. Her D.C. journalism chops have gained her more than 60,000 Twitter followers. And those followers can help us spread the word by sharing this spreadsheet that Chris designed with the public. We're basically going to try to set this up with the feeling of a scavenger hunt. Each cell of the spreadsheet is a clue to the administration. The way we've set it up is that you will type in a comment, and that comment will be pasted in the spreadsheet right away. And so everyone will be able to see what everyone else is doing, is finding, working on. And as these officials develop policies, 
it becomes a sort of immediate database and resource for potential conflicts for policies that we haven't even thought about yet. It's, it's really for the benefit of everybody. So if the Trump administration enacts a policy, all we have to do is look at the spreadsheet to see if that policy is making money for people in his administration. Then we can investigate whether there's a real conflict. On July 6th, a Thursday night, everything was finally ready to go. We just had one worry. Would anyone see it? <laughs> you know, we, we besieged the public. Give us work to do. At 5 a.m. Friday, Citizen Sleuth went live. Just around that same time, Chris Subaxi was Things picked up from me. It's 3.06 on Saturday afternoon. And my son might be waking up. But we were at the park this morning and I had to turn off my phone because it was blowing up with, um, with notifications that people added things to the spreadsheet. I sat down about half an hour ago. We have 57 new comments. Oh, I think I have to go. Within a few days, Christina had big news for our next editorial. This, of course, was while Bloomberg was still working for the White House, which is no longer the case. That's a $2 million mistake. So Christina followed up. Hi, Elaine. My name is Christina. By calling the Office of Government Ethics. And they confirmed there is a requirement to disclose prejudice. I guess you could say he didn't miss something about his mortgages. So why does it matter? Well, we asked Walter Shaw. He ran the Office of Government Ethics. He's the guy who resigned after bumping heads with the president. The concept of disclosing the source of loan or any other sort of liability is very important in a financial disclosure report uh, because it enables the agency ethics officials to evaluate potential conflicts of interest with the lender. With the help of our citizen sleuths, we were able to find the properties and the lender, J.P. Morgan Chase. But when Christina contacted the White House for comment, something strange happened. We heard that from a kind of public relations person who had represented Bannon in the past and had also represented his former employer, Breitbart News. The name of the PR person who contacted us is Alexandra Priate. What wasn't clear was how she was being paid. Christina gave Alexandra a call. Hey, um, so a question has come up since the story ran, and that is, um, who paid for you to call me about, about Steve's finances? Neither Alexandra nor Bannon would answer. Her firm did respond, saying Bannon is not paying Alexandra directly. If she's doing the work for free, Bannon could be breaking the law. 
because it's seen as accepting a gift. You can't accept hotels, free hotels, you can't accept a fancy car, and you can't accept the services of a plumber or a professional communications person. Those are, that's how the rules are. And they're very well known, and they're very strict. So Christina called the White House for comment. They refused her calls. Bannon's ousting was caused in part by his reputation for acting outside the chain of command. Since the Center for Public Integrity ran that story about Bannon, the Campaign Legal Center, where Walter Shaw now works, called on the White House, the Department of Justice, and the Office of Government Ethics to investigate. Project Citizen Sleuth also uncovered Trump appointees with thousands of dollars in student loan and credit card debt, and officials taking a government salary who still owe money to the IRS. One question out there. How much is President Trump worth? So you asked me to figure out how much money Donald Trump was worth? That CPI's data guy, Chris Zubacki's again. And the answer is I can't really do that. But Chris was able to come up with the number, a minimum value for his assets. I can uh, look at his public financial disclosure and uh, tell you what's on that. Uh, which uh, lists a uh, minimum of $1,428,481,453. A minimum of $1.4 billion. We don't know the actual value because these financial disclosures aren't as specific as that sounds. We'd have a much better idea of Trump's net worth if he released his tax returns. But he hasn't done that. These forms aren't designed for the Trump administration. They're not designed for the super rich. Take Trump's hotels, for example. The president listed a lot of them as being worth more than $50 million. That's the highest amount you can list on the form. The hotels could be worth hundreds of millions. We just don't know yet. But we're going to keep digging. We'll be updating that number as we get more information. Christina says the president has a history of keeping his finances secret. Everything about Trump's experience in business is private. He ran a private company. He inherited a private company. He doesn't report to shareholders. He has a very deep sense as a person that he has a right to keep this secret and go to hell if you'd like to, to get it from him. But now, as the president of the United States, his obligations are to the American people. And according to Walter Shaw, who put together these forms, you have a right to find out what his assets are. We're talking about people making decisions in government that are going to affect real live human beings. So if I'm the government official deciding whether your water should be clean enough to drink, I shouldn't have a financial interest in your water staying dirty and unsafe to drink. And that's why we still need your help. Here's CPI's John Dunbar again. If you're a teacher, maybe you want to take a close look at what Betsy Voss is reporting. If you're an accountant, maybe you want to look at the Treasury Secretary's disclosure. Absolutely anybody on Wall Street, anybody in the banking industry, anybody who's a lawyer, uh, anybody who has any kind of expertise in foreign investment, you know, and ask yourself, is this somebody who's going to be working to further their own best interests, or are they going to be working to further the interests of the people who are out there? who voted for him, who are working their rear ends off paying taxes.
If you want to try your hand at being a citizen sleuth for Reveal, here's what you can do. Go to the website, publicintegrity.org slash citizen sleuth. If you turn up any leaves, we'll follow up on them. Again, that's publicintegrity.org slash citizen sleuth. Thanks to John Dunbar and the whole team at Center for Public Integrity, including Dave Leventhal, Chris Zubatsky, Christina Wilkie, and Carrie Levine. Reveal's Amy Walters When we come back, we revisit another story we worked on with CPI. It's an investigation into how the location of your kid's school could be making them sick. You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm in 
Tamika is a single mom of two, but no matter how hard she tries to give Tayan and his brother a good life, she can't fix one thing. Nearly 600 trucks rumble past the school and their apartment complex every day. Every time you turn around, you're getting sick, you can't breathe down here. You got to keep your windows closed because other than that, the films, all the bad smells coming in here, it's too much. A couple of years ago, Tayan had a serious scare. I'm looking at his face and I'm looking at his chest, how his chest was moving. And I see he was fighting to breathe. And I'm like, wait. They're like, to me, they're like, asthma attack. We're going to the hospital. Tayan was diagnosed with asthma. Now he takes steroids and uses an in-home air purifier. Tamika flips a switch on a white box connected to a tube and holds it under Tayan's nose. Fresh air pours out. Years ago, you used to be able to open your windows and feel the same way. But not right now. Huh. Y'all need some fresh air? Yeah. I need it right now. <laughs> How's it feel? better. This purifier releases clean air not found outside. He uses it about four times a week. Well, the way I breathe, it just feels uncomfortable sometimes. You just feel like a struggle, just struggling a lot. On this line, that's supposed to be easy. I wish I could breathe a lot more better. A lot of things can trigger asthma. Air pollution is just one cause. Professor Ed Abel studies air quality and respiratory function at the University of Southern California. So the studies that we've done have shown that for children that live close to busy roadways, that it does have an impact on their health. Abel says being exposed to busy roads can affect kids' lungs as they grow. I kind of think of it like you know growing a tree in the backyard. If you tie the tree back and tether it, you can change the shape of that trunk as it grows. And that's sort of what happens with children's lungs, for example. The pollution can keep young lungs from growing. Aval continues with his tree analogy. For children that grow up in more polluted areas, they don't grow, in a sense, straight and tall in terms of achieving the maximal growth of their lung health. What they do is tend to be a little stunted. They tend to curve and grow. And our concern is that over the course of years, that sort of slight change in the growth trajectory become sort of permanent. And we have no information that suggests that they jump up and somehow catch up again. That's something that worries Tamika. A recent study found that people in Newark were being hospitalized for asthma at a rate that was two and a half times higher than the rest of the state. That's for all ages. Living now here, you go to hospital every, every other week. It's sad. It's sad. A lot of kids missing school because of asthma. She's lived on Hawkins Street for 15 years. Tamika also has severe asthma. 
When she talks, you can hear her struggle. She has a rescue inhaler that she tucks under her pillow. She uses it almost every night. As we talk, Tamika feels like she's running out of breath and gets the inhaler. When you take it, then I put it on hella, shake it. You're supposed to take a deep breath in, out. You take this and you suck it in. Hold your breath for a couple of minutes. Then you exhale. And then you take another deep breath. That's how you do that. Go up after that. Take Go in the bathroom, put some water in your face. Take a deep breath and I try to lay back down at night. This right here is a lifesaver. Even though the school is convenient, if she could afford it, she says she'd move someplace. Where they go outside and they could run, they could play, come in, eat, take their bath, and go to bed. Not happen to take medication every day. That right there is sad because sometimes if that medication not doing just enough, you know you got to make a hospital visit. Who wants an emergency room? As a mother, you see a child not breathing, you be like, why? Why me? What did I do? Did I do something to cause this? But in a real fact, for the parents that are out there, it's not your fault. It's not. So whose fault is it? Part of the blame, old diesel trucks and what comes out of their pipes, something called ultrafine particles. Research suggests they can slip into the bloodstream, bringing toxic materials with them. At Tayan School, that's the kind of danger he and other students face constantly. Districts across the country face similar problems. Nearly one in five schools that opened in 2014 was located near a heavily trafficked road. To just have trucks like this, it's really not good. In this location right here, we did a truck count. Right here, we actually stood a little bit there. And within an hour, 200 to 300 trucks traveled just at this location. Kim Gaddy is a local environmental activist. We met at one of New York's busiest intersections. It's about 15 minutes away from Hawkins Street School. Too many polluting facilities have been allowed to uh, be placed next to schools, next to homes. Too many of the corridors for trucks have been allowed to happen close to our parks, close to our schools. On this block alone, there's probably about eight different recycling companies. So with recycling companies comes what? Trucks. So you got that sniff. <laughs> what is that? That is the diesel. That is, that's the pollution. Come on, let's cross the street. You all together? Kim wants me to get a closer look. So we jump in her car and drive out to see what brings all these trucks into the area. You in? Yeah. If you look back here, you see all the port. See? All of the trucks and containers that come from the port. And one block removed. And you see some of the truck industries, companies. But the housing is right here. It's not like it's three, four blocks. or It's one block in. See? 
and this is a house so it's one block in and then these are different industries trucking industries trading industries oftentimes we don't even know um, what's coming here some of these are painting facilities that are emitting different smells these are houses individuals live right here we pass housing projects and another school. The people in this community are mostly African-American and Latino. That's something we see happening nationwide. Schools that serve largely minority students are found near busy roads at more than three times the rate of schools that serve mostly white students. Most of the trucks that come to Newark serve the port of New York and New Jersey. It's the largest port on the eastern seaboard, and about 9,000 trucks come here each day. The port is the economic engine for the region, but what it is for us, it's a death zone. A death zone. Kim would know. She witnessed her brother-in-law die in the street from an asthma attack. She also had a cousin who suffered an attack, made it to the hospital, but died. Kim is Newark born and raised and has asthma herself, as do each of her three children. And so it's very personal to me. We believed Port Authority when they agreed to a ban on the older trucks. In 2010, the Port Authority said that it would ban trucks built before 2007 because they're dirtier than those built afterwards. That would have meant that trucks passing by Newark schools would have higher environmental standards. But the Port Authority later changed its mind, saying they needed more time to face in the new rules and money to help truck drivers get new rigs. Well, I don't have no more room to store, nothing. <laughs> oh, this is a big mess that I have here. One step at a time. <laughs> Gabriel Procel owns and drives one of those older, dirtier rigs, built in 1999. He's 58 and has worked as a truck driver for 20 years. Gabriel is short and stocky, with a weathered face covered in stubble. He's wearing faded jeans and a stocking cap pulled low over his forehead. I climb into his rig, and Gabriel shows me part of his route. Every morning. This is my second house. I spend uh, at least 12 hours a day in my truck. Are you ready? Yes. You have your helmet and your. <laughs> <laughs> and this is an old truck, so it's very loud, and, and you know how it is. I write shotgun. Gabriel has a cooler tucked at his side with today's lunch. At my feet, a plastic crate with a jumble of cables and spare lights. On the windshield, a sticker of the Virgin of Guadalupe. There's critics that say that your truck is part of the problem. How would you respond? When they see big trucks, they see a smoke. I can't say nothing. I can't hide it either because I'm a big truck. So I just go as long as nobody says nothing or nobody throws stones to me. I just keep going. Because I know it's a problem. Gabriel would like to have a new truck, but he says he needs help from the government to get a loan. Well, accessible loans to buy trucks, regardless of the credit. If you are a truck driver, you should have access to a lower interest loans. 
That's the only way people can go and buy drugs. Gabriel says as an independent contractor, there's no way he could afford to buy a new rig on his own. This engine has 800,000 miles. It almost gets to the million mile. I stay with this one up to the end of my working days. And I'm going to retire peaceful, knowing that I did uh, they move America because everything is delivered by truck. So they should be giving us trucks for free. <laughs> if they say uh, firefighters and police are heroes, uh, truckers too. Nobody recognizes that. In the meantime, Gabriel and hundreds of other drivers with older trucks will continue to pass by Hawkins Street, where Tayan Bowers goes to school. His mom, Tamika, says it's time for the community to put a stop to the pollution affecting their kids. It's up to us to make a change, trying to make it different. Show them we do matter. You know what I'm saying? Like this right here, we don't have to accept this, but we've been accepting it for far too long because people don't want to come out and speak opening mouth. So therefore, people, open your mouth. Let's go. Make a change. It's not for me, it's not for you, it's for our children and for our future. That story from Fernanda Camarena. You can hear how riled up residents like Tamika are, but is anything going to change? To talk about that, let's bring in Jamie Hopkins. She's a reporter at the Center for Public Integrity who partnered with us on today's show. And Jamie, why did you choose to look at this school in Newark? Yeah, um, Newark has a, a lot of schools near busy roads because it has a lot of busy roads. It's it's right next to New York City. There's a big port there. There's an airport. Um, so there there's a lot of sources of transportation pollution in addition to, to cars and trucks. You counted around 8,000 public schools near busy roads. How did you define a busy road? Either a road that gets at least 30,000 total vehicles a day on average, or it has 10,000 plus vehicles a day on it, at least 500 of which are trucks. And, and that's because diesel, particularly old diesel trucks, are a well-documented problem in terms of air pollution and health impacts. So we wanted to make sure that we could account for these, these roads that have more trucks, even if they don't meet the 30,000 threshold. We got a, a really helpful calculation from the Texas A&M Transportation Institute that looks at the typical mix of vehicles on the roads today. And they found that a heavy-duty diesel truck on a highway puts at 63 times the fine particle pollution of a gasoline car. What about the rest of the country? What was the data you put together on that? Well, we found schools near busy roads all across the country, you know, more common in big cities, as you would expect, definitely more common in big cities. But you can find it in smaller cities and in suburbs of all sizes, even in rural areas and towns. Um, so this, this is a nationwide problem. You know, talking to folks, it seems like this is not one that's really on the radar of, of school systems. They've got so many things to think about. They're not really thinking about the issue of, of roads and what's coming off the roads. Why are so many schools located near these busy roads? Well, it seems like a mix of things. I mean, some folks tell us that cost plays a role, that school districts are looking for the cheapest option, and sometimes that just happens to be the land smack dab by a highway or other source of heavy traffic. Sometimes it's just hard to find land that isn't close to a busy road. Looking at, at the map in, of New York City, uh, just <laughs> you can see how it would be really challenging, for instance. Um, sometimes the school was built first and the highway came later, but part of the problem seems to be that school officials largely don't seem to realize there is a problem. Traffic pollution is invisible. The decades of research about its effect on people, the measurements showing that it's it's higher near roads, 
this is doesn't seem to be very well known outside of public health circles and environmental health advocates. So if you don't know the air is worse near a busy road, you might see that location as a plus because it's easy to get to. Some of the schools we looked at, what's closest to the road are the playgrounds or the athletic fields. Um, and the air filters in your building won't help there. Schools that serve largely minority students are found near busy roads more than three times the rate of schools that serve mostly white students. Why do you think that is? Yeah, we wondered that. And what we found is that where students live is important. And Big cities are uh, have higher numbers of minority students, lower numbers of white students than, say, the rural areas. But one thing that could get lost in this is the reason why people live where they live is something that is influenced in many ways by decisions that were made decades ago. You know, some of the discriminatory decisions about where people were allowed to live and also where where busy roads and highways would be built still seem to be having ripple effects. And we talked to some experts about, you know, how that continues to affect where people live um, and where they go to school. It's a problem for everybody, um, but certainly health researchers are, are more concerned about what this means for kids. Thanks, Jamie. That's Jamie Hopkins from the Center for Public Integrity. And right about now, you may be wondering, what's going on with my kid's school? I think as parents, it's hard for us to recognize that we have placed our children in maybe a place of endangerment when we had the best intentions. How one mom went on a mission to clear the air at her kid's school. When we come back, this is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Before the break, we heard how traffic pollution was affecting schools in Newark, New Jersey. Now we head to Southern California, a place that makes you think of the glamour of Hollywood, the sway of palm trees, and a cool, fresh breeze blowing off the Pacific Ocean. But for the kids in El Marino Elementary School in Culver City, that cool breeze is not what they smell. And those few miles between the Pacific Ocean and the school is a freeway, and not just any freeway, the 405. The busiest freeway in the United States, and one of the busiest sections of that freeway is right next to the school. Our reporter, Amy Walters, drove through LA traffic to find out what these kids thought about the freeway in their backyard. What about the freeway air? Do you notice that at all? Do you even hear the freeway noise? No, not very much. 
we rarely hear yeah. the cars driving when we're all the way here. Yeah. There's a big, tall, concrete sound wall that keeps the freeway, even the massive 405, pretty much hidden away. The wall is right by the kindergarten classroom. And that's where Amy meets up with Mike Reynolds, the business manager for Culver City Schools. So this is a kindergarten, and I think we're pretty much at the closest point between the school and the freeway, that right? Well, that's, that's the freeway wall right there. I, you know, I'd say it can be more than you know, 50, 60 feet maximum. Like three car lengths, something like yeah, that? Looks, yeah, yeah, just right in that neighborhood. El Marino Elementary is within 500 feet of the 405. Now that would go against state guidelines if the school were built today. But what makes this school different from the one we heard about in New Jersey is inside these classrooms, the kids are breathing filtered air. So this was our first system. And the central component was the MERV-16 filtration. MERV-16 filter is designed to remove the smallest particles. This project has been six years in the making. Inside each room is a large blue heating unit hanging from the ceiling. Inside the units, which were installed in the 1970s and look like it, are highly sensitive filters. But the project isn't entirely finished. I'll let Amy take it from here. First, I have to introduce you to Rania Sabti Daly. She's a mom, a scientist, and the woman a lot of parents here credit as the miracle worker who got this project almost done. You must be Amy. Yes. I'm Rania. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice Hi. to meet you as well. Come on in. Thank you. Arriving at Rania's house, it's way more beach bungalow than McMansion, but this is Southern California real estate, and none of it's cheap. These are my children, Seth. Hi. He's in his first year of college. Okay. And he's 18. Hi. This is Noah, who just finished being at the school two years ago. He's in seventh grade now. And he's 12. Luke, can you say hi to Amy? Hi. They all went to El Marino. They all play music. The kids put on a mini concert for me. And they all have golden locks lightened by the Southern California sun. They look a lot like that 90s band, Hanson. But for these guys, it's more guitar rock, less mbop. I would grade it high because of the language. And I think that I can definitely tell now in middle school how it helped people learn more. Noah was part of the Spanish immersion program. The school also has Japanese all the way through sixth grade. El Marino has been rated as one of the top public elementary schools in the state. Rania's kids had been there for years before she decided to do something about the air. When I got interested during the year of 2011, it was just a time in my life where my children had been at El Marino for a long time. They're 12, 15, and 18 now. And they all have been to El Marino. And I loved that school. But she also knew how close it was to the freeway. And she was worried. See, Rania grew up in a home with smokers. She has asthma herself, and she saw it affecting her growing sons, too. I've always had asthma. That's Seth, the oldest. We don't know if it was started by me, you know, playing around and being outside next to that freeway during my elementary school years. Um, I don't know. I have, I still have some asthma issues sometimes. A lot of things can trigger asthma. Air pollution is just one cause, and we don't have the exact data on how traffic pollution is affecting the kids at El Marino. We might not ever know. But at lunchtime on one very hazy day, 
I took a very non-scientific poll. Does anyone here have asthma? I asked. He has asthma and he has asthma and his dad and his older brother. That dude over there has asthma? That dude over there also has asthma. Hi, do you have asthma? You have asthma, babe? I have. You think it's a lot of kids with asthma? Or? I think there's um, a lot of people with asthma. My mom moved me out because of the 405. Nine-year-old Ashley Brown is here with her mother to pick up her younger brother. Her mom, Christina Dronin, took Ashley out of El Marino a year and a half ago. Just the studies I read were really freaking me out, like the increased chances of cancer. And like, I just thought if something were to happen to her and she got one of those rare cancers related to freeway pollution, I couldn't live with it. People are like, well, it's LA. LA's polluted. That's just living in LA. And I'm like, no, like 20, 10 to 20 times worse. But people just didn't want to acknowledge it because it is the best school in Culver City. And so I think it was a, in my opinion, a little bit of choosing to put their head in the sand. Christina says she's okay with her son going to El Marino now that the school has installed the new filters. Back at Rania's house, she also acknowledges that for a lot of the parents, Realizing what the pollution was doing was hard to face. I think as parents, it's hard for us to recognize that we have placed our children in maybe a place of endangerment uh, when we had the best intentions. But rather than taking our kids out of El Marino, Rania went searching for a way to improve the air so the kids could stay. I'm very aware of the fact that we had, I suppose, privileges that may not be privileges that other school and communities may have. And it wasn't just money. It was time, energy, and Rania's expertise. I um, have a PhD in environmental health sciences that I earned at UCLA, and I have a master's in public health. Rania's own background in science, that was the big advantage. So I started asking questions. There were answers were difficult to define, but I'm a researcher, and I don't give up. First, she started looking back to see what testing had been done already. Back in 2000, the air was tested at the park near the school. But the park is further from the freeway than the school is. The school was never even mentioned. The fact that there were sensitive receptors in that school, children, was completely skipped over. A few years later, the teachers at El Marino complained about the dust and asked for more testing. The people who were asked to come do the evaluation, they measured lead on windowsills instead. So Rania helped start a group of parents and teachers, Clean Air El Marino, they called it. And they did it themselves, borrowing expertise and equipment from USC, UCLA, and the South Coast Air Quality Management, really anyone who would listen. They ran their own tests of the pollution in the air. And we looked at ultrafine particles, and we started right next to the freeway, under the freeway, crossed the street, entered the school, and took measurements. This is what they found. The school is not protected by any magical wall or sound wall or anything. A lot of people, administrators, parents, thought the sound wall would really protect us from particles. And um, I thought that measurement was going to be something that was going to show if they were right or wrong. And it did. They were wrong. 
The sound wall wasn't protecting the kids. The children at El Marino were being exposed to the airborne pollutants from the 405. This was a huge problem. And now they had to find a solution. And one option was to think about moving the school to another campus somewhere in the city where it'd be further away from the freeway. They actually considered moving the school. Um, We contemplated that. We pitched it a little bit. There was no traction there. Both the school and the freeway, it seemed, were there to stay. So Rana kept looking, and it turns out there was another school, also by a freeway just a little farther south in Long Beach, and they'd figured out how to clean the air in the classrooms. Air filters, MERV-16 air filters. They're often used in hospitals, and they're pretty easy to install. And they take 90% of the pollutants, smoke, bacteria, that kind of thing, out of the air. So we found that there was a solution, right? So we were excited that we were going to get somewhere. If we could bring these filters to our school, we could clean up the air. Rania was smart when it came to the science, but there was also a political battle to wage. The residents weren't too excited about what her findings meant for their property values. But where there's a will... There's more testing on the way. Rania was able to get some precision instruments from some universities. That's Mike Reynolds, who you heard from earlier, the business manager for the Culver City School District. He says the data Rania came up with was real science, and it made it hard for the school board to look away. Rania requested a meeting with the superintendent and myself and came and presented her case. And soon after, Mike was working with Rania to get the first filter installed. It was a pilot, so there was more testing to be done. After we installed the unit, Rania came out with the devices and measured the ultrafine particulates and found that about 90% of the ultrafine particulates were removed. It was documented now. With the filters in and the doors and windows closed, the kids could be a lot safer at school. All they needed now was the money to put the filters in the rest of the buildings. The Culver City School District had an initiative called The Whole Child. So being very involved, we knew about that, and we were very quick to seize it as an opportunity to say, you know, health and safety is part of the child, and that they breathe clean air is part of health and safety. And if you care for the health of the children and the whole child, then this should be important to you. And they said yes. The school district introduced a bond measure on the Culver City ballot allocating over $100 million for city schools. And it passed. The money was there, and the filters were installed. Good. Yeah, definitely good. Yeah, very helpful. Good for people's health. That's good. Those are Rania's sons again. They seem pleased with the work she's done. But now, they've moved on. None of us were really there still at the school, so it wasn't, it didn't really have an effect on us. I was definitely thinking, like, why haven't they done it already? Because it's kind of a clear problem. And, I mean, you're right next to the freeway, so I think they should have addressed that issue earlier. But for Rania, it's not just about her kids. I understand asthma very well. My children have faced it at times. We've had our struggles, but they're not the reason why this is happening. I believe in the health of the other children. This is beyond my children, and this is beyond myself. And that's why I'm in it. 
And about the air outside, on the playground, filters won't work there. But they are talking about a warning system that keeps kids in class on those days when the LA smog gets really bad. That's the next project, I think. Jamie Hopkins is with the Center for Public Integrity based in Washington, D.C. Today's show was edited by Suzanne Rebert, Cheryl Duvall, and Deb George. Amy Walters was our lead producer. This week's production team includes Fernanda Camarena and Mwende Hasey. Special thanks to the Center for Public Integrity who partnered with us on today's show. CPI received support for the school pollution stories from the Dennis A. Hunt Fund for Health Journalism and the National Fellowship, both programs of the University of Southern California's Center for Health Journalism. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins, my man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen, with help from Catherine Raimondo. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reven David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letton. And remember, there is always more to the story. Yeah.